This morning during our time studying God's Word together, we are going to be learning about God. What could be better than to be learning about God? It almost sounds a little strange. So many times you hear so many things taught and prioritized in churches. Uh, it's almost like, oh, we're going to talk about God and not just me. Oh, we're going to talk about God today. There's no greater topic. There's no greater subject than for us to talk about God. One pastor who I think is in heaven now once said something I think very provocative. He said, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. It's an important matter. It's an important matter because it, it, he does relate to you and he relates to the world around him. Theology, the queen of the sciences it used to be called. The thought of God, the studying of God and his ways. And today we're going to be in Exodus learning about God. We'll look at, we'll see how far we get. I, there are four scenes that tell us important things about God that we'll look at today. Four scenes that teach us noteworthy Things about God in Exodus 17 and 18. So if you want to find the book of Exodus, it's easy. It's the second book of the Bible. We're studying the book of Exodus as a church on Sunday mornings. So if you're just joining us, welcome. Uh, it, you'll fit right in if you want to. Uh, Exodus 17 and 18 will be our chapters. The book of Exodus is about exiting. I know, profound. I get paid to do this and think this stuff up. It's about leaving. So you follow the exit sign to leave this Room, same kind of thing. Israel had been enslaved. The Israelites had been enslaved under Pharaoh, who saw himself as a great god, as the king, as the Pharaoh. And they've been enslaved. They've been oppressed for 400 years. And God delivers them. God sets them free. God redeems them. God, to use a more New Testament kind of word, God saves them. He rescues them. And the book of Exodus, on purpose is the book in the Old Testament that stands out that's about deliverance. It's about salvation. It's about being set free from oppression and slavery. And it's on purpose that the New Testament draws on it so much because it's designed to help us to see what was done physically, wonderfully, but physically for the nation of Israel, the Israelites, looks forward to a greater deliverance, looks greater to a better Passover lamb. That's why Jesus is called the Passover lamb in the New Testament. And so it's great to study Exodus because we learn about history. It's great because we learn about God. We learn about all of these people and all of these trials. We learn about miracles. But it's also great because it helps set this stage. It helps us to learn about Jesus in anticipation. And so it's a good book for Christians to study, not just for people who lived before Christ came to earth. So I hope that helps you to kind of acclimate to the whole thing. Uh, let's jump right in. Scene number one highlights the provision of God. We're going to see that God provides for the Israelites. So number one, first scene highlighting the provision of God. If you want to look there with me at Exodus 17, beginning in verse 1, it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And by way of review, to bring everybody up to speed, we've already been seeing this sort of thing. Moses is the leader. 
that God has chosen. And so oftentimes there's overlap. He's the mediator between the people. He represents the people to God, but he also represents God to the people. And oftentimes when the accusation is against Moses or the attack is against Moses, it's actually ultimately against God. So why have you done this, Moses? Why have you done this, God? So it's complaining. It's grumbling. It's quarreling. And it's going to get even worse. We're going to see this is hostile. This is finding fault. This, as I mentioned last week, this isn't, ultimately this isn't about water. God has made a promise to them to, to lead them to the promised land. And so it's, it's not going to be about whether or not they're going to die of thirst. But it is about whether or not they're going to trust God. And we see over and over again, they don't. So let's keep moving with that in mind uh, amidst the hostility. Verse 3 says, but the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled, complaining, griping, moaning, and groaning. They're grumbling against Moses. And we know they're also grumbling against God, one and the same really because he's a mediator, against Moses and said, why did you? Why did you, Moses, slash, why did you, God, bring us up out of Egypt? Why did you deliver us? Why did you save us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So they're they're accusing Moses, read God, too, of, of, of criminal behavior. Is this just so you would kill us? Is this just so we would die? And we we got a flavor of this last time where they, they have... um revisionist history in their memories. Wasn't it great back in Egypt? Oh man, we love being slaves. We love being oppressed. We loved all the terrible hardship and we grumbled and, oh, we, no. Yeah, they did grumble and complain about it because it wasn't so great. But they're they're so self-absorbed and self-consumed here and not trusting God. It's as if the tyrannical, self-consumed, self-absorbed Pharaoh was a better God than Yahweh, the one true God. It's it's meant to be ugly. It's disgustingly ugly. So verse four, so Moses cried to the Lord, no doubt with urgency, even the way the grammar is, it's with urgency. He cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. See, it is worse than we might've thought at first. This is so escalated. They want to kill him for being such a bad leader who represents God as mediator. Yikes. Verse five says, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. They're going to be witnesses and taking your hand, the staff with which you struck the Nile. That was in chapter seven and go. Okay. Think with me about this. This is, this is crucial. Take the staff, take the rod symbolizing authority. This has been done in other cultures, even since then, but it's been done in ancient culture, cultures. So the, the, the rod, the staff, sometimes later it would be a scepter that symbolizes I'm the leader. And if he's the God-appointed leader, he's the God-appointed leader. So that staff represents God's authority, the sovereignty of God, Right? But in chapter 7, and he mentions it right here, with which you struck the Nile, that was sovereign judgment from God, the ultimate king, against the Egyptians. Now, stick with me on this. Take the same rod. Take the same emblem of sovereign authority and judgment 
and go to this rock. Hmm, what's going on? I want you to be thinking about that. We're going to come back to it. Something actually pretty impressive and intriguing and distinctly Christian actually is going on. There's going to be a major twist. Before we move on though, if that rod was used symbolically, sovereign judgment against the Egyptians' water, maybe Moses, at least for a moment, might think, ha, ah, yeah, this is going to be used as sovereign judgment against who? The Israelites. And you know what? They got it coming. I don't know if he was thinking that or not, but that's how it was used against the people, the Egyptians. And now these folks are acting as bad as the Egyptians did. You know what? Maybe it's time for a little rod of discipline. Could be. Now let's keep going. Verse 6. Behold, I will stand. This is God speaking. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock. Did I earlier say, hmm, this is fascinating. Fascinating when so oftentimes the rock is symbolic of God. And now you're going to take the divine sovereign symbolic rod used for judgment. And you're going to go, I don't think we're reading too much into it based upon the usage of rock. You're going to go strike me? Say what? Strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And I'm like, really? What? Yeah, really what? And we're going to come back to it. Just hold that thought. Most of you look like you are thinking, so just hold that thought. Okay, let's keep going. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. There are the witnesses. And he called the name of the place Masa, means test, and Meribah means quarrel, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's memorialize this place. As the place where Israel showed utter, gross, disgusting unfaithfulness. May everyone always remember that that's what happened here. How dumb, how crazy to question God's promises, His power, His goodness. Is the Lord among us or not? We do, it's not worded this way, but in our world, sometimes we say it a different way, but I think we say something similar. We say, where was God? Or where is God? Well, it's foolish to question God's promises. His timing might not be the timing you're expecting. But where was God in all this? He was there all along. Always going to take care of them because of the promises he made, even according to the Abrahamic covenant. It was never about water. It was about them trusting God. So there's plenty to learn from this, I hope you see. But what I want to do for the sake of time is keep things moving. And I want to, before we look at the next scene where we learn something about God, we're seeing here he provides. I do want to go to 1 Corinthians 10 to see how the Apostle Paul relates this historic account to New Testament Christians. And then you don't need to hold your thought anymore about the rock being struck by judgment. So 1 Corinthians 10, it's worth seeing. It's worth turning there. It'll help you burn calories. 
I mean, just whatever I can do to get you to try to find 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to see the connections. And here's the cool thing, too. We know 1 Corinthians 10, if, it's, if, if 1 Corinthians is written by Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is what it says in chapter 1, it carries the same authority as Jesus if he's an apostle of Jesus. So we know that this is the right interpretation. This is the right application. This is the reality of what's happening. So... For all of those of you who know what I'm about to show everybody, it's cool, huh? For all of those of you who don't know, it's cool. Chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers... That's, that already is interesting. The Apostle Paul's writing to New Testament Christians, and he's saying, our fathers, and he's going to talk about the Exodus. He's going to draw a connection to a spiritual lineage to them. So actually, that the history we're learning about in Exodus is our history. If there are fathers in the faith, our forefathers, if you will. Is foremothers a thing, thing? I don't know. Okay. Our fathers were all under the cloud. Think Exodus. And all passed through the sea. Think Exodus. And were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Think Exodus. And then verse 3 says, And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock... That followed them. Dun, 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 dun. There. Oh, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Messiah. The rock was Christ. Hmm. Take the same rod that you used, representing God's sovereignty, and judge the waters of the Egyptians. He uses that verbiage. And strike the rock and water will come out of it. So it's not a neutral or positive context. It's a judgment kind of context. And I would suggest to you that putting the pieces together, if the rock is Christ, Christ is the one who is judged by the sovereign. So that the people can have water to sustain their life. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. You go, huh, this is fascinating. This is cool. This is, this is Christianly. <laughs> so if you need to, in 1 Corinthians 10, you can write in your margin where we just read Exodus 17, 5 and 6. It is a judgment kind of context. So I'm not reading too much into it. I'm not trying to do fanciful, flighty interpretation. Well, we better move on in 1 Corinthians 10. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, because there's more there for us to see. Nevertheless, I think that's the most important thing, the greatest, coolest thing. But let's see some more things. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6 says of 1 Corinthians 10, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So we should learn something that even as those who belong to the new covenant, new Testament church do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We're not to that part yet, but let's keep reading for now. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Now that is also worth a moment of reflection. We must not put Messiah, Christ, to the test as some of them did. 
Old Testament saints, the Old Testament Israelites, maybe we should say, put Christ, who hadn't been incarnate yet, to the test. So, there is a Christ before the incarnation. It's cool stuff. Amazing to see. And people say we shouldn't have a Christ-centered interpretation of the Old Testament. I don't think Paul took that class in seminary. He, 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 he's seeing it for what's really there. And we're destroyed by serpents. Verse 10 says, nor grumble as some of them did when, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happen to, the, happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So, so we, we, are, we are not national Israel. The church is made up of all nations. National, unique Israel with national laws fit for a nation. We're not national Israel. We are the church made up of the body of Christ, all nations, great commission. But there, so there, so there's difference. But do notice there's also similarity. And we would be wise to know that there are differences and there are similarities. Okay, let's move on. It's not going to get any better though, by the way. <laughs> I kind of just want to have it be done and be over, but some of you would want your money back. So we're going to keep moving. Scene number two, learning about God, highlighting the protection of God. So provision of God. Now the protection of God in verse eight, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, first time I think we've met him, won't be the last, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Again, symbolic of God's power. Moses is God's representative, mediator. 10 says, so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and her went up to the top of the hill. Then verse 11 says, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Sounds kind of like a fun game, but it wouldn't have been a fun game, right? Life and death. And no doubt there's symbolism here. If we are depending on the Lord to do this, we will succeed. If we don't depend upon the Lord, we won't succeed. And symbolized by, we're going to trust God because we have the rod, right? The staff, the symbol of sovereignty that he's called us to use. Then verse 12 says, but Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until going down, the going down of the sun. Usually the word actually that's translated steady in the English standard version is in moral context. It's the idea of faithfulness or trustworthy or true. So we would say this is a miraculous thing. Are we going to show we're depending upon God? Or are we not going to show we're depending upon God? And when we do, we prevail. Supernatural, extraordinary, miraculous. That's how dependent they are upon the Lord. Verse 13 says, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And we know why. Then verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial 
God likes to have them have memorials in a book and recite it in the year, in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Literally, it's blotting out, I will blot out. So it's just super forceful, never to be remembered, but to be remembered as to never be remembered. Verse 15 says, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Probably the idea is they tried to go after the Lord by going after his people, right? Tried to undo God's sovereignty. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So let's have this be a banner. It's a word that actually could be used for just a pole. Um, But probably for us, especially as 21st century Americans, uh, we can probably relate better to a banner or a flag that's on a pole. We're going to stake our allegiance out in a high and lifted up place. We're on this side. Or we're on that side. Well, this is going to memorialize this pole. Maybe it has a flag on it. Maybe it doesn't. But you get the idea. Maybe it's inscribed on the pole. This is the Lord's doing. He is victorious. And so remember him and know him. Yahweh. We're on his side. It's not patriotic, but you get the idea in warfare. Now, there's one more really interesting thing about this. You know, the the takeaway is God protects them. God provides safety for them. He defeats their enemies. They trust in God. One more interesting thing is in Deuteronomy, where it also talks about this same event. And, And I think it's worth looking at even if we don't get all four scenes done today? Because in Deuteronomy, we learn something else about this. And I think you might find it interesting. So I'll read from Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, verses 17 to 19. You can do so if you would like. As you're finding Deuteronomy, not always when Israel would be threatened, did God call for the utter destruction, utter annihilation, build a memorial to it. It's not always that severe. This one actually is a standout when it comes to severity. Why would it, why would God want it to be so harsh, so strong, so intense, so severe? And Deuteronomy actually gives us a hint as to why. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, talking about the same event, verse 17 says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he, listen to this, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So now we have a little bit more commentary. He didn't take your warriors on head on. He went after the weak who were in the back. We might put it in terms of he went after the women and children and elderly and hurt ones. Huh, that's fascinating. Because he did not fear God. And sometimes that's used of believers, the fear of the Lord. But oftentimes it's actually used just the fear of God is more generic. He he didn't have any respect just for decency. They, They didn't have any respect for human life. They, they, they weren't even trying to play fair. 
So I'll keep reading and I think we'll put the pieces together. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that your Lord your God is giving you from an, for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And the reason I wanted to draw that to your attention is when we read our text and we read the Deuteronomy text, I think we have a better idea as to why. And so someone who, like our friend, my friend, our friend David Van Drunen, who writes about things quite often on a scholarly level about natural law, would, would point out a text like this and draw people's attention to things like this. You know what? Even the unbeliever knows a certain sense of fair and not fair. You don't go after the women and children. That's not decent. That's not right. He had no generic, general fear of God. And so the consequences for such things are actually even more severe. I thought that was fascinating. If you want to read about that, you can pick up Dave's book called Divine Covenants and Moral Order. They're particularly heinous. And so the consequence is particularly severe. Let's go to scene number three, learning about God, okay? It's highlighting the next one. We're going to highlight the praiseworthiness of God. Scene number three, now we're in Exodus chapter 18. God is unique, so he should be praised. It says in verse one, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, who he learned about in chapter four, verse 18, but I don't think we've heard about him since, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for the, for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So who is Jethro? He's Moses' father-in-law. Who is Jethro? He's a priest of Midian. He's not an Israelite. He's a priest of Midian, but he's heard about the Exodus, maybe from the caravans coming through. Who knows how, but he's heard about the Exodus. If we keep reading, it says in verse 2, Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. Maybe for safety, send her home with the, with the boys, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in the foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So military might, verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. Moses, having received word from a messenger, apparently, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Verse 8 says, then Moses told his father-in-law, I remind you, a priest of Midian, not an Israelite. All the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So what is Moses doing? Moses is testifying, right? Moses is bearing witness. Our great God, not your God, but our God, the God of the Israelites, our great God is a saving God. He's unlike the other gods. He's amazing. Guess what happened? Uh, well, he's already heard, but let me tell you more about the details of the Red Sea and Pharaoh and the oppression. Our God saves. He's unique. He's different. He's not like the gods that are made by our own hands. He's not the gods of our, of our imaginations. He's utterly and totally different. He's testifying to him. 
I know it's not exactly the same, but if you uh, have an in-law who's not a believer and you tell them about all the great things the Lord has done for you and for maybe your spouse and for family members, you get the idea. And since they're a relative, they could really appreciate the fact that things have gone well for their daughter. Okay? And I don't think we're too far off if we're thinking in those kinds of terms. Moses is telling him about the greatness of the one true God. Then in verse 9, and Jethro rejoiced. Literally, it could even be translated, he delighted or he, he trembled even. This is staggering news. He would have known about Pharaoh. He would have known about the chariots. He would have known about the horses. He would have known about the might and the power and his magicians. This is staggering news for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered, think saved, redeemed them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So some make Jethro out to be a believer here. And Jethro is as a believer just like Moses is. And maybe so. I don't know. But, but I'm not so quick to make him a believer. I, I, I'm quick to say he's a priest of a different group, a different religion. Now, maybe this is where he becomes a, a believer in the one true God, but it's undeniable. Even, even the, let's pretend like he's an unbeliever for now. We don't have to have a church split over this, okay? Like-minded people would disagree. But it is stressed that he's a priest from somewhere else, a different people. He's not an Israelite. But he recognizes power when he sees it. Remember even Nebuchadnezzar, like in the book of Daniel. He, he, he was forced to recognize power when he sees it. Plenty of unbelievers have seen great things and don't have a good explanation for it. And then when it's good for your daughter, you really like it. Will we see Jethro in heaven one day? I don't know. Let's have a vote so we could fight. No, we don't know. The Lord knows. Okay. Verse 10, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Maybe he is a believer. Maybe he isn't just having a moment of clarity because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, father-in-law, before God. Now, if that's a unique covenant kind of meal where he's recognized who God is and Moses accepts it, maybe we will see him in heaven. I don't know. But he praises God, which provides an amazing contrast to so many of the Israelites. Priest of Midian? Pagan? The Israelites who had themselves experienced redemption? And his praise puts their praise, I mean, they're not even comparable. It's no wonder the Apostle Paul would want us to learn about our own kind of attitudes even as Christians. We can do the last one really quick. See number four, because it would be really hard for me to preach a whole sermon on number four next week. And we're going to get to the mountain, chapter 19, next week. This next one, scene number four, highlights the providence of God. Highlights the providence of God. When we talk about providence as Christians, we're talking about God providing 
So a miracle is something where God does something supernatural and provides, but it's through means you could never explain otherwise. Providence is when God provides in ways you could explain. But how do they all work together? How does God provide through natural means? We say, oh, this is providence, how this works. Well, we're going to see providence here. Providence happens with Moses. Verse 13 says, the next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. So he's making decisions. He's talking about right and wrong, uh, just and unjust, what's true and what's not true, what God wants and what God doesn't want. He's judging in that sense. He's God's appointed leader. Then it says in verse 14, that when Moses' father-in-law, a non-Israelite priest, I want to remind you of that. Then Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people. He said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Interesting, the Ten Commandments haven't come yet, but God has laws. Sometimes Christians forget this. God has always had laws. There's always been right and wrong. We don't have to come to the Ten Commandments to learn that. That comes later. We're not to that part yet. So there are already laws before there is that law. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing, verse 17, is not good. And I think he's wrong. Of course it's good, right? It's good to know what God says and to help the people, isn't it? Surely it's good to know what God expects, to know who God is, to know what God's law is. And if people have a question, you can answer. It's certainly good. But he means something different, right? It's not good the way you're handling this. That part, that part is good. But the way you're executing good things is not good, is what he's getting at. Because if we keep reading, we'll see it. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. The thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, the priest who's a Midianite. <laughs> I will give you advice and God will be with you. So here we have it. If you're looking for a book title, right? The Jethro Principle. (laughs) Subtitle, Leadership Lessons from a Midianite Priest. (laughs) Which is pretty bizarre. He's an outsider looking in. Saying, okay, what you're doing is good, but the way you're doing it, this doesn't make any sense. So a good father-in-law who's not even an Israelite, is saying, I could give you some advice. I'm not teaching you theology. I'm not teaching you those kinds of how to worship God. I'm not doing any of those things. But I am going to tell you some common sense advice. I've been around a while. That's all. I think that's all that's happening. So don't write that book, please. Verse 19, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. All of that's already been happening. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. But any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. Common sense. 23 says, if you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure. And all the people also will go to their place in peace. It'll make you happier. It'll make them happier. It'll make Mrs. Moses happier. Verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he 
had said. I don't think he was learning theology from Jethro, the foreign priest, or about how to worship God from the foreign priest, but he was learning common sense. So my question for you is, Mr. and Mrs. Christian, Bible-believing Christian, how in the world could an unbeliever have common sense? I'm still taking him as an unbeliever here. Or a baby, 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 baby believer, if that makes you happy. Well, because he's made in God's image. Yes, the fall happens, but according to the Old and New Testament, even after the fall, people still bear the image of God. There's, there's still something special about human beings who are called to rule and reign, to create. They're special. Not only that, how could an unbeliever have common sense? Because they're made in God's image. Also because there's this thing called natural law. The way the world works. Common sense. Sometimes Christians forget and think that somehow the only thing we could ever learn, the only things we could ever learn are only from Christians. That doesn't work, by the way. It just doesn't work. Thankfully, no one does this consistently. But I will take this opportunity to say, sometimes we learn things from unbelievers because they have common sense. And sometimes Christians don't have very much common sense. We don't learn how to worship God. We don't get our theology from them. There should be a distinction. But it's okay to learn common sense from people who have common sense. We could do a whole series on that. But we won't, at least not now. Are those all the verses? I think those are all the verses. The best part of the whole text, surely for me, if I'm voting, Christ was the rock. Life-giving water for them temporarily. But then think about the woman woman at the well when Jesus talks to her. The The water I offer will cause you to never thirst. And she says something to the effect, give me this water always. (laughs) Because it's looking to a greater spiritual reality. When we look to Christ for our life, the one who was struck so that we could have life-giving water, we find satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a great morning at Omaha Bible Church. We pray for believers around the world that you would strengthen them as they gather or have already gathered depending on where they live and that you would further equip them to go out into the world to do gospel ministry. Help us to be clear about what your law requires and help us to be clear about what your gracious gospel provides so that there can be hope and forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If there's anything we can do to help you, if you want someone to pray with you, you have questions you might have, this morning Dallas and Cindy Foch are up front here. Dallas is an elder here, and so we offer our help to you. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.